0: Welcome to the Witty and Gritty Podcast, hosted by Brooke Ann Farron. Your personal growth matters. And we're here to help. Hey guys, I'm sitting here with my mother-in-love, Betty Derue. Betty, tell our audience hi. Hello, everyone. Yes, like millions of, okay, maybe not millions of people, but several (laughs) listeners out there. Thank you for coming today. I'm glad to be here. This yes. is going to be fun. You just got off a 24-hour stint watching our little children. Yeah. <laughs> I got my, ride. Right, I got my grandma time in. Yes, and now a nap is in store, I'm sure. Oh, that's what we're doing here, right? Yeah. I came for my nap that yes. I deserve. We told everyone we're going to go record, but after this, we're just going to go crash on the couch. It'll be great. Um, all right, so I obviously know you, uh, but for the listeners that don't know you, tell us a little bit about you? What are you doing these days? What are you up to?
1: I'm an attorney. I've practiced since um, 1984 and I have a small practice with my partner Calvin Capshaw and some staff and one other lawyer and uh, we do mostly federal commercial litigation. Um, So if normal people need lawyers for things like traffic tickets or divorces. um, I refer them to someone else because that's not what I do and I don't even know how to do it. (laughs)
0: Right, but I'm pretty sure that you could figure it out because you're a pretty smart lady. Oh, thanks. Yes, Yes. and you got some kids.
1: I have four grown children, Mm -hmm. one of whom you are familiar with. Your husband, Jacob. Yep, and (laughs) Jacob is the third of four, and so two big sisters, Sheree and Michelle, and then little brother Eric.
0: Little brother Eric. And what is the grandkid total at?
1: We're at eight with one in the oven. Yes. Going to have number nine in February.
0: That's impressive. Not yours, though. Not yours. Gosh, yes. Make that clear (laughs) to all listeners that was not a pregnancy reveal. (laughs) No, this oven is turned off. Alrighty, so that's where you're at now, but tell us a little bit about you as a kid. Where were you born? Where do you What do you call your hometown? Siblings? Tell us about that.
1: I uh, was born in Kansas, and we moved around a bit when I was a kid. My father was in professional theater, and then when I was a young child, he got a job as a professor of theater at Lamar University, so we moved to Beaumont, and then I grew up in Beaumont from... From then on through college, actually, I uh, lived in my childhood bedroom until I was 22 years old and had graduated from college.
2: Wow.
1: And after um, undergrad, then I went to the University of Houston and got my law degree and went to work.
0: Yes. Yes, you have. Uh, Siblings, cousins, family nearby?
1: I have. uh, I was the youngest and I have. One brother and two sisters, and then I had an older brother who died before I was born in a very tragic. Um, it was a DWI um, pedestrian accident, mm. and so I didn't know him, but it certainly colored um, my family's, you know, relationships and, and thoughts and memories. So, I but I was the baby child, yeah, and so that certainly I think impacts who I am,
0: right? Yeah. The babies of the family will deny it. The oldest all know that's true. It's true. <laughs>
1: I sat in everyone's lap until I was 12 years old because I was the baby. Yeah. And I was the baby of all the cousins as well on both uh, sides. So I was really the baby of the
0: family and yes. took full advantage of that. Yes, it comes with some perks, that's for sure. Where are my oldest children at? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, when you were growing up, what do you remember enjoyed doing? For fun... Or um, were you trying to keep up with any of the older kids?
1: I think um, as a kid, I started piano lessons as a very young child, like seven years old, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and took piano and was fact, I guess, nominally a professional musician because I was paid to play. I played church services and um, played the organ and piano and played some accompaniment and some... So, so anyway, I was paid not a lot of money, but through college I've yeah. made my extra money that way.
0: Hey, count it,
1: <laughs> count it. So certainly uh, that musician background, and then I also always loved sort of my two things a reading, mm-hmm. I was the little bookworm, I was the nerd girl <laughs> with a room full of books and a weekly trip to the library,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then I also grew up with a family of needleworkers, so I learned to crochet and embroidery, and I learned knitting and all kinds of fancy needlework. And that was not something that I woke up thinking about, oh, I think I'll go to Michael's and do that. It was just in my home, in my grandmother's home, my aunt's, everybody mm-hmm. was involved, and I. Learned how to sew and make clothes when I was very young. Actually made clothes that I wore to school when I was in sixth grade.
0: Wow. So,
1: But again, it was something that was just sort of in the air in my family. And Mm -hmm. nobody really asked me if I wanted to. Yeah. Although I actually loved it a bunch. Uh And really wanted to excel and to learn new things. I I always loved it, but it wasn't something that... I I don't know how to describe it. It's like... Whether or not your kids eat, they don't right. think they don't wake up and say, hey, I'm an especially good eater. know, yeah. it's just something that you do every day in your family. Right.
0: No one said, you're going to sit down and join the family business of needlework. Or, no, it right. was
1: just something that everyone did.
0: Yeah. I think growing up visiting relatives, everyone after dinner would always play card games. And so I really like playing games and everyone's really competitive. And it just, it's kind of that environment sets you up for it for sure. So piano, though, where did that inspiration or desire, interest start?
1: I think, again, it was something that it was just expected, and I carried that with me when I had my four children. If you were going to be an educated person, you had to learn to read music, and you needed to play an instrument, and mm-hmm. that was just part of your education. And so that was certainly the expectation my parents Certainly my mother played piano and took lessons and did recitals as a child, and that was just part of what you did. Yeah. And so that's, I carried that with me, and so when my, my kids got old enough, they will tell you that I was um, perhaps unreasonable about some of those things. <laughs> my youngest son swears that I would withhold food if he didn't practice, <laughs> and I... I Admit that maybe on occasion, yeah. If he was being stubborn, I was stubborn.
0: Yeah, is that a word? That's what parenting's all about (laughs) is like seeing who can outwit each other and yeah, yeah, survive till the end. So, um, were you ever did you always enjoy piano and learning to crochet? Did you always like the challenge, or was there a phase where it was a little bit of hey, this piano is a good skill to have, you need to do it, and then? You fell in love with it, or have you just always enjoyed challenges?
1: When I was a young child, I did it because, again, it was just expected in my family, and I didn't learn to read music right away, certainly not as quickly as my teacher expected.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she would play the piece for me, and then I was supposed to read it and practice it and come back the next week and play it. And I just paid really close attention when she played the piece the first time, and then I just copied her. And listened to it and played what I heard. And so I thought I was a very crafty and smart yeah. little girl, and I outwitted her. And so I had taken lessons for almost a year and had gotten fairly deep into the repertoire mm-hmm. before she figured out I couldn't read the music. Oh
2: my goodness. <laughs> and then I was
1: in big trouble, and there were tears, and there was like, I grabbed a piece of music off the piano stand and wadded it up and got in big trouble. <laughs> So yeah, so it wasn't always wonderful, although while I was getting away with it, I thought I was pretty darn smart, yeah. and that was fun, yeah. <laughs> and then once I learned, once everybody sat on me, and my, my parents <laughs> sat on me, and my teacher sat on me, and then I learned to read music, and um, once I got past that, this is the other thing, because I had started lessons sort of younger than my peers in school, Mm. by the time my girlfriends and everybody started taking piano lessons, I was better than they were. Yeah. And I'm pretty competitive, and so part of enjoying music was that I could play the harder piece, or I could play it better, or I could read music and show off in front of people. So I don't know that I loved music, but I certainly loved winning. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I did love music, but uh,
1: I think that that was only psychologically a big part of it was that I was good at it and i liked to show off and
0: <laughs> yeah so do you think when you were realized like okay I, you may have only gotten to be so good at memorizing hearing others play do you ever remember reflecting on hey now that I've learned how to read music like it actually helps like did you ever come back to it and be like okay I see why they said I had to like oh yeah I
1: was over it in two weeks yeah yeah I mean I got I it was pretty terrible for a couple of weeks and Mm -hmm. then it was just like oh I can read I mean it was sort of like learning to read was like stop being stubborn and just learn to read and I did and then it was like oh and this is easier because the pieces had I mean like as the pieces got harder it was harder to that's why I got caught yeah (laughs) Actually, one of the punishments was that I wasn't allowed to go to the library. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Until I learned to read music. I mean, that was that, and it was funny that my parents thought of that as a punishment. But I guess now as an adult, I I guess that was pretty obvious because I loved it so much that that was the thing that they took away from me.
0: Yeah. Eric food. (laughs) Right. Exactly. We all have our own form of punishments. All right, so that was you growing up, some of your talents and your interests. Um, do you remember your first job, like as a teenager or while going to school? I babysat and I loved
1: babies. Mm -hmm. So certainly that played out later in life because I wanted this great big family. And, um, took care of the church nursery and got paid for that as a teenager. And then I was a waitress. Um, Where were you a waitress at? Ferrell's is fabulous fun for everyone. (laughs)
2: Sorry,
0: not familiar with that
1: one. Ferrell's was an ice cream parlor, and we all dressed up in 1920s outfits. And um, we served ice cream Mm -hmm. and sandwiches and stuff. Did you skate? Was it one of those? No,
0: we ran a lot.
1: We ran, and we
0: sang. That was lovely. I can see why. I would pay good money for ice cream if it came with singing. That's right.
1: So there was the the waitressing, which I guess was a sort of a, you know, everyone has to be a waitress at some point oh, in their yeah. life. And yeah. I worked at the mall at JC Penney's, which I hated, and it was awful. Why? Uh, it was boring. And, like, I would sneak a book in when there was no <laughs> people to, to wait on, and they would fuss at me, and I was supposed to be dusting or looking busy and that just made me crazy it's like I dusted yesterday it's not dusty I want to read and so I was very cranky about it and I was also a smart alecky you know college student but then and this is like credit to my wonderful person who was my supervisor at that time J.C. Penney's had a craft and fabric oh, section oh snap and so what they did was they put me in that section and I made, you know, like when you go into a fabric store or a craft store, somebody has already made an example of whatever the crafts are that they're selling. Mm-hmm. So I waited on people and sold them stuff. But then instead of dusting,
0: yeah,
1: I crocheted or I made, I made some uh, rugs, mm-hmm. you know, the, like the little rugs that you do with the rug hooks. Anyway, so I, I made stuff for the displays. I and think, I was like really good at it, and I really loved it. So anyway, JC Penney's ended up being a, a good job. Yeah. After they got me out of the dusting Once department. I
0: figured <laughs> out what your strengths were. Right. I think that's really telling. Looking back and thinking of like the you I know now, it's you enjoy trying new things and being creative and having that outlet. And that doing the same redundant task day in day out, while is safe. Um, it lacks that challenge or that creative. I outlet. hated it. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad they figured that out. So well, why didn't you stay there forever? For a
1: little, for a little while, I, they had me in women's clothing because they thought, oh, as a teenager, I could be like really cute and talk <laughs> to the ladies about what they would. And I hated yeah. that as well. I wasn't good at it. I didn't care. I was like, I'm as cute as I'm gonna get when I wake up in the morning. (laughs) And if like somebody says they're gonna go do retail therapy, to this day I can't stand that. Mm -hmm. If clothes would just show up in my closet, I would wear them. Yeah, I hate anyway.
0: That's enough. You look very stylish and put together all the time. So
1: well, that's just because I like buy. three gray suits <laughs> and one pair of black pumps and when they wear out I buy another pair of black pumps
0: the staple pieces right Is that yes they call them? Yeah. And,
1: but it, it also means I don't shop well I jump out of the car on the way back from court <laughs> and I go in and I buy that next pair of black pumps yeah. that I then wear for however many months until they look shabby, and then I get one more. I just don't give it any thought. The point is I don't have to think about it or spend
0: time on it. Yeah, because you would rather spend that time... Reading. <laughs> reading projects, right. what have you. Okay, so you worked at Penny. You had a pretty awesome job creating stuff, and then where'd you go from there?
1: I was, during that time an undergraduate and I got a degree in English and I briefly taught English um, to high school students a couple of different jobs
0: Were you going to school to be a teacher or yes. was it like I want an English degree and I'll figure it out later
1: No I was going to be an I was going to be a high school English teacher that was where I was going
0: And where did that come from like going down that career path What do you think
1: Probably two things a couple things yeah. um I had a wonderful English teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, I loved her, and she loved me, and I did not take senior English in high school, and I don't even know how you swing this, but there was this thing that she could have a person in her room, like a student in her room, that did stuff for her,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and I don't know, I graded papers or something, yeah. you know, I had one of those jobs. Like a teacher aide. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, when I was a senior, and um, then she would just stack up books that she thought smart people should have read, and so basically, I whatever she would want me to do, you know, I would read the other kids' essays and whatever. And then I also edited the student literary magazine, so that was also the same English teacher. So anyway, we spent a lot of time together, and basically, she would just give me books to read. She would make me reading lists that smart people should read or that that was her view you know Mm -hmm. so i mostly just sat around in her room and read books and talked to her about it so that was certainly where did why did i think i wanted to be an english teacher certainly a lot of it came from i had this really great relationship with a person that i thought was
2: fabulous
0: and i love that too obviously an educator we've brought that up in several episodes but even in the book grit it talks about um you know, there's people in our kids' lives that see their talents and potential and interests. And then the next step is that those people help them develop those. And so your teacher obviously saw that you had a passion for what she already had a passion for, but she didn't, like, stop there. She gave you these responsibilities. And, again, you probably felt special and loved and, like, I did. you know, on a pedestal in her world, which I'm sure you were. But then she challenged you, to continue to challenge you and help you develop your talent and interest. So that's so awesome to hear. Okay.
1: Well, I'll say this, too. I mean, this is sort of the other piece of it. My mother was a big reader. Um, she didn't have a formal education much past high school, but she was a huge reader, super smart, read the newspaper every day, could talk about anything going on in any part of the world, super smart lady and very well-read. My daddy, obviously, was an English... Um, uh, theater professor, and so that was sort of a sub-genre of yes. English literature,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and at our house, he, he had this great big fat dictionary, and if somebody said a word, one of the kids would say, what does that mean, Daddy? And so after dinner, we all had that sort of conversation at dinner, mm-hmm. and looking back, I'm sure he did it on purpose, right. although maybe not, maybe he was just talking, right, I don't yeah. know, or some combination of that. Uh-huh. And so he would say go get the dictionary and he would get the dictionary out and we and he would then we would look up the word together and he would read it and if there was a word in the definition that you didn't know then you had to you know go to that word and read that one and then if on that page there was a you know those big dictionaries have little tiny illustrations like that are an inch big mm-hmm. and if you said what's that funny animal daddy mm-hmm. you know then you had to read that definition so it sounds weird to say but After dinner, many, many, many nights of my childhood, we read the dictionary.
0: Now, see, that sounds like a punishment to me. (laughs) (laughs) But what do you think he did that made that, you know, an interest and a bonding and obviously a learning experience? And I mean, you sound like you speak of it fondly.
1: Oh, it was wonderful. And right. It wasn't about like if nobody said, what does that word mean? he wouldn't have said, go get the dictionary, yeah. it's dictionary time. I right. mean, it was never that. It was that somebody in the family said, what does that word mean, daddy? Mm-hmm. And so it was a sort of a give and take, and it almost always initiated with a child asking a question. Mm-hmm. And if it was one of the big kids that asked the question, mm-hmm. and it was like I wasn't even supposed to be in the conversation, made me want to be in that conversation right. even more.
0: Yes, again, shout out to the youngest. Always. <laughs> Have to be right there. Well, too, I think there probably was some gratification in like learning these big new words. And you know, um, I don't know, do you think too that were your parents really busy, but this was the time of day that you got to spend with them? I don't know. I think
1: part of it was probably that my parents were much older. My daddy was 45 when I was born, my mother was 37. Um, and they had been through the Great Depression. You know, so, I mean, I almost am like one generation back from my actual age because that was my parents' experiences and what they brought to child rearing. Yeah. And so I think they did have what was probably typical parenting at that time, which was go outside and play, we're busy.
0: Yeah. Well, and, my and kids that, would love that. <laughs> well,
1: they weren't, I mean, they weren't neglectful, and I don't mean that. No. But it was just that was sort of the style. It was mm-hmm. like... You go outside and play now. You're yeah. a kid, and that's your job, and to get out of my hair. Yeah. And if you're here, then maybe you're here to do a chore.
0: Right. <laughs> so I'll just volunteer to go play outside. Yeah.
1: Uh, so yes, I think that there was this sense of we're a family together, and we get attention from our parents and conversation with our parents at mealtime.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that was expected. If Everybody showed up at dinner, and you washed your hands, and you sat down in your own chair. And so, I mean, I think that was a part of... What I considered pretty typical parenting from yeah. that time, although it's maybe very different than what I did or what what y'all are doing.
0: Well, and there's a lot of conversation out there too about bringing back the family dinners. And I mean, you see images on Facebook and the internet of um, people, families at the dinner table, everyone's on their phones, you know. Oh, and right. So um, I think, you know, people are trying to get back to that time because we are so busy. And kids are involved in so many things and in some ways what well, everyone's busy, maybe for different reasons, but just having that that time at the end of the day.
1: Ah, well where are we? Oh, about early jobs, let's see. Yes. Oh, okay. I taught English in a couple of different contexts very early on. One, I was 21 years old, and I wasn't certified yet, nor did I even have a degree. Oh, my
0: goodness.
1: And they needed a teacher for a program for students who had dropped out of high school and had come back, not for a GRE, but an actual diploma.
2: Okay.
1: So I was 21 years old. These are kids that had dropped out of high school. A lot of them had babies. Some of them had criminal records. Um, So they were in my hometown Mm -hmm. and actually in the high school where I went to high school. And... I was full of Shakespeare and I was full of all this I mean Whitman I you know I could like launch into big you know I could tell you their biography and I could recite the poetry and I was so excited about it and I thought that was the most wonderful way to spend my time or anyone's time in the world so but I was pretty isolated I guess in some ways because my thinking about going into that classroom was that like here's these people who haven't had this yet and they're dying for it <laughs> <laughs> and let me just say that most of my students at the time were about my age i mean they dropped out of high school and now come back so they were early 20s um some of them were parents, single parents some of them like i said had criminal histories or drug problems i mean they you know they had had some experience in their life that was very different than me mm-hmm. i was 21 years old this daddy that I'm telling you about, I still lived in my bedroom. He taught at the university where I taught. We drove to school together, except on the days that it was pretty when we walked to school together because uh. our house was right on the edge of campus. And so I was pretty isolated and very naive and young and still very much daddy's girl. Mm-hmm. And um, I started in on this, and I couldn't get him to shut up and sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrible at being Some an English teacher. still
2: have that problem.
1: <laughs> but yeah. these were like... They had no interest. Mm -hmm. They wanted a GRE or a a diploma for some reason, Mm -hmm. probably to get into the military or to, you know, to get whatever their next, but they had no inherent interest in Shakespeare. No. Mm -hmm. They weren't interested. They didn't care. They didn't have the academic preparation. So they had neither the interest or the ability to read or care about what I wanted them, what I wanted to share with them that I was so excited about. Um, so now I go to my next sort of mentor person, mm-hmm. a woman in Beaumont who was later, not at that time, but later, her name was Evelyn Lord. She was the mayor of Beaumont oh, okay. and she had a daughter that was my age and I'd met her and her daughter and I were friends, but really she became my friend mm-hmm. and my mentor. And when this English teacher thing didn't work out, like, Pretty early,
2: like a a month
1: in. Mm -hmm. I was done. Yeah. And I went and sat in Evelyn Lord's office and cried Mm -hmm. (laughs) with my long blonde hair and my little blue eyes. You know, I was like such a kid. And she said to me, Betty, you're a bright school, bright girl. Why don't you go to law school? Honestly, the first time it had ever occurred to me. Wow. I didn't grow up like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Right. No. She just, she was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And she's like, she honestly said it sort of in that offhand way bright girl why don't you go to law school so I said and what you do. <laughs> and she also hired me at the law firm where she worked in Beaumont as a law clerk as a I don't guess we called the law clerks like case clerk or something I don't remember the name of it but we I basically did filing
2: yeah
1: and I took the LSAT and <laughs> I didn't even like, you know, people study for them and stuff. Yeah. I didn't even sign up. They said, if you come and somebody else doesn't come, you can sit in their chair and take the test. Like, so you can do an unscheduled. So I just showed up one morning.
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: and I took the test.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and um, Did I... Did you Oh, I got, like, the second high score oh in, my God. in the state that year. Because I didn't... I mean, like, two things. I will say, I was a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. And the LSAT, at least at that time, was all about use of the English language and logic. And if you've read your whole life, everything you can get your hands on, that's really the best preparation ever. Okay. And no amount of six weeks of cramming Mm -hmm. replaces reading the dictionary when you were (laughs) seven, right? I mean, it's just like I had this life that prepared me for, not for law school, but for the LSAT.
0: (laughs) There are so many people that are tuning out right now because they've failed it like three times. They've spent money on tutors, but anyone that maybe thinks their kid or middle schooler maybe it's not too late is interested in going that route. I like just your read. Advice.
1: Just read. Take them to the library. If they love reading, they're going to do. I don't know that they'll do well in law school, nor do I am I sure right. that they will no be a great lawyer. <laughs> but I am sure they can pass. I mean, they will do will get a score on the LSAT good enough to get into any school yeah. they want in. Yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> when did you, because the book talks about this too, you have an interest, right? When do you feel like you developed a passion for law? Because this sounds like it kind of happened pretty fast. Oh, never, actually. Oh. I, will, I will say that. What? But Have I, I wanted. It? I
1: mean, like, no, I had a passion for it, but not in the sense of there were other people that grew up saying, I want to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. or I'm watching movies about lawyers, or I'm reading biographies about lawyers, and that's how I'm going my to save the world. Yes. Right, yeah. No lawyers in my family. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do in law school was what I always wanted to do, which mm-hmm. was
2: read. Yeah.
1: And that's all law school is. Yeah. It's like... Thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of reading. And then you get to stand up and talk, which I was pretty good at. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so, so
1: that's all it was. It was like, um, did I want to be a lawyer? Mm, I wanted to do well in law school because I wanted to be a good student. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of competitive, and so I wanted an A. And so I worked really hard to be a good law. What I wanted to be was a good law student. I had no idea how to practice law or what it was like. I had no idea. Yeah. And so I just wanted to be a good law school student because that's where I was at the time. Mm -hmm. And I
0: did that. Now, at what point did you get married and have kids? Was that? Between
1: undergrad and law school, I got married. Mm -hmm. So when I started law school, I was married. Baby number one, uh, while I was in school, and I was pregnant with my second daughter, when I graduated, big fat pregnant, yeah. took the bar pregnant, had the baby, and was driving home from the hospital because back then they actually mailed you your scores. Mm-hmm. So my mailbox was out at the end of the driveway, and we drove by the mailbox, and a new baby in the back of the car baby reached in. Three? No, no, maybe number two? Two. two. Yeah. Okay. Reached in to the mailbox and got my scores down. Yeah. And if I hadn't passed, I'd already said, done all this I need I don't need to be a lawyer and, I am, oh and I am and I am not taking the bar again I mean the bar was pretty grueling mm-hmm. and I was pregnant and I had a toddler
0: yeah <laughs> oh because that is such important context too because I think there's a lot of people in my phase of life um you know having kids maybe having their last planned kid god help me uh, <laughs> Did you see my eyes light up when you said that? uh, I'm not making eye contact with you right now. But, um, you know, maybe they went down a certain career path and they want to change career path. Maybe they thought they wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and now they're like, man, that's not my thing. Or they're working really hard to become a stay-at-home mom. And so the idea of a transition while in this phase of life can be pretty overwhelming. Um, or trying to go back to school while having kids and all those things. So I think that's really important context as we talk about this uh, for our listeners to be aware of. Okay, so you did pass the bar.
1: I did. (laughs) So So then I I was doomed to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. No, I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't tell if you were kidding or not. I was like, oh, but wait. uh, All my other questions are not appropriate anymore. Okay, so... Now what do you do? What do you do after you pass the bar? Can you just, like, walk in anywhere and get a job as a lawyer? Or when do you pick, like, family law or, like, patent law? or? I um,
1: thought at the time that I wanted to save the world, and certainly I had this sense of if you had a lawyer, you had a lot of power. Mm. And you could right wrongs, and anything that was unjust, you could make it just, or you could stand up for the person who had not been treated correctly, in all kinds of contexts. So I had this sense of, oh, I've been given this power, and I must use it for good. Mm-hmm. And I think every lawyer thinks that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's really interesting, because lawyers are on both sides of almost every issue, and both sides have convinced themselves, and Sometimes rightly, sometimes perhaps not, that they're on the right side, mm-hmm. that they're there to use their power for good, and that their client has been wronged or has been accused wrongly or something, um, either in a business context or in a criminal context. But there's always this sense of, I've been given this power, I've been given this diploma and this license, and I'm just use it for good. Mm-hmm. So I worked for a little while in Houston. Um, There was a study, a book that came out that said when CPS takes a child away from a parent, if the parent is forced to pay child support and to visit, they're more likely to be reconnected with the child. If they are just let off the hook, Mm -hmm. even if that's what they think they want, oh, I can't pay child support or I don't have time to go visit. Mm -hmm. If they're forced to do those things, then they... Are more likely to be reconnected and be a whole family again. And so, one of my jobs is as a lawyer, I worked for CPS, and I went to court. This is—I mean, it sounds very harsh, but I went to court against parents who had lost their child, and I forced them to pay child support and visit their children. But again, because I thought that that was the good, you know, I, I thought I was doing good, mm-hmm. so I did that for a while, and it was on a grant, so it was maybe a one-year program. I can't remember exactly what. How exactly it ended, but it I know how it ended for me, and that is that I went to work for the prison system and I worked for the um, Texas prison system representing inmates.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did you go from it ended because the grant ended, or did you have a change of interest like it wasn't what you thought it would be?
1: Oh, um, this is like not very romantic or it doesn't no. put me in a terrible a wonderful light at that by that time. I had three children, and mm-hmm. so Jacob was my baby. Mm-hmm. And I had a job in downtown Houston, and we couldn't afford a home anywhere close to my job. I mean, because the farther out you got in Houston, the more affordable the homes got. So by the time we could afford a home big enough for our family, we were pretty far out. So I was spending a lot of time
2: mm-hmm.
1: commuting in standstill traffic, and I had three babies I mean they weren't babies but I mean they were all little toddlers like not school age yet and I came home and I'd had this offer from the prison system I don't know how they found me or I don't know exactly how that worked but um, I was aware of this program and they had offered me a job
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I sort of forgot to say let me check with my husband <laughs> <laughs> I said uh, yeah, I'll start next month because to me the idea of moving to a small town and I was spending an hour in the morning and an hour at night transporting my children to their daycare situations and then going to work and then coming and then reversing that at night. And the idea that somebody was going to give me two hours every single day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean there was there you know I can't I cannot express how valuable that seemed.
0: Now, the book, and we've kind of talked about this um, a week or two ago, talked about grit, sticking with something and knowing when to change your circumstances. There were times in the book that I felt like it was like, you have to stick with it. And even if it is terrible, you got to grind it out. But then there's times in life where, you know, you're kind of have different opportunities become available. And is that really quitting because you wanted two hours of your life back? Or, you know, what's your take on, was that a lack of grit or is grit even a factor in making that job change?
1: I think it was grit in the sense of um, just the idea that what I was doing as a young lawyer, I was pretty fungible. Somebody else could do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm saying that in a way, and I don't mean to be sort no. of you know dismissive of somebody who's been through law school and done all those things of and passed course. the bar I mean, but the truth is, what I was doing, somebody else could do, but what I was doing at home for my children, no one else could do. So that. it was more about grit in the sense of I've undertaken parenthood,
2: mm-hmm. and I
1: want to be good at that. right. So it wasn't a matter of I'm quitting those poor CPS, you know, yeah. clients. I mean it wasn't that so much as this is my primary responsibility and mm-hmm. I have to be good at it. And if I'm not good at it, then that you know, that to me yeah. was the thing I could not not be good at.
0: Right. Like looking back and having regrets in that area. Yeah. Well and part of grit is like growth trajectory and, you know, taking on challenges. And so I definitely think parenting's challenging. And so, yeah, I agree. Like you said, this career shift helped you in your personal growth at home, those challenge areas too. And, well, you know, we can reflect now, but it led you to more of what maybe you're doing today, whereas if you would have always stayed. Oh, that's true, right. I
1: mean, like, and you look back at these steps and you have no idea why you are taking any of these steps. Right. I have to like sort of circle back and say the lady who's my sort of mentor who was the lawyer, Mm -hmm. when I went back after I'd finished law school and I went back to see her, Mm -hmm. she starts dying laughing in a context where it's like it wasn't nothing I said was funny. And I was like, I don't get this. What are you laughing at? And she's just, she just could hardly catch her breath. She said, I didn't really think you would be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) She said, what I really thought was that you needed time to grow up, which was really true. At 22, I was very naive. And she said, what you needed was time to grow up. And I just thought it would keep you out of trouble while you were growing up. <laughs> and so I sort of accidentally backed into being a lawyer. That's so <laughs> Even to the extent that the, that the one female that I knew was a lawyer didn't really think that, I mean, she didn't see that as my sort of like, purpose in life you know right. she not that she was demeaning me in any way she loved me but she just thought it was funny that she yeah. just thought I needed to stay out of trouble while I and she thought I was a good student and I would enjoy school so yeah. why not go to law school
0: well kind of circling <laughs> back to like the English teacher right yeah she, that two different things the English teacher saw your passion and helped you develop and this was like almost an off-handed comment that you took as really good advice, <laughs> then now. now look at you.
1: Well, and that's the other thing that happened. It's like after TDC, I got an offer for was unquestionably the best job of my life. I was a law clerk for a federal judge for 10 years.
0: Okay, hold on. I feel like we're missing too many parts of the story. Okay, so you go to criminal law. How long are you there for? Um, is it called criminal law? Was it called? Remember, well,
1: I was. I was actually. What we did was we represented inmates. Mm-hmm. So again, I was sort of like the underdog lawyer. Yeah. The guys who, in the most restrictive environment in the universe, still couldn't behave themselves. Yeah. And so part of what we did was they would say, "Well, I didn't do that crime, and I was unjustly convicted." Right. So we did writs, meaning we challenged convictions, but we also defended them when they attacked guards or when they raped fellow prisoners. I mean they were criminal defendants inside the prison system.
2: What is that like?
1: It was emotionally brutal.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but we lived out in the country and we had twelve acres and I forgot to mention I had had another baby in the yeah. meantime. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd had four babies in five and a half years and we had this sort of idyllic country Living out in the country with some wooded acreage and little bitty town where, like, you could get to work in five
2: minutes. Mm-hmm.
1: So emotionally brutal job, where you were doing very, very tough stuff, mm-hmm. defending people and helping people who could who could not comply with the just the most simplistic sort of requirements of human interaction.
0: <laughs> Do you think you were pretty good at compartmentalizing that or were there times that it was hard? Oh,
1: it was it, it was emotionally the, the the prison work was emotionally brutal. It was also very gratifying in the sense that I worked in an office with other people who were sort of defending the underdogs. And so it was like I still love those people mm-hmm. and still have contact with a lot of those people and We thought we were doing something very, very important, and we had each other to rely on, Mm -hmm. and there were some older lawyers in that group that, this probably doesn't make any difference to anybody that's not a lawyer, but one of my colleagues who was an older gentleman who I loved, who was just brilliant. Um, had come to lawyering through sort of a circuitous path. He was a math professor, and he was one of the guys when they brought the rocks back from the moon. Oh, yeah? He was one of the scientists that examined the moon rocks. You know what I mean? Like, he had this intellectual... He was an intellectual giant. And he also argued at the Supreme Court. The Penry case and won, which doesn't matter to anybody if you're not a lawyer, but the Penry case is a big death penalty case and won. So we had these really... a a close-knit working group. Mm -hmm. So even though the work was hard, you were working with other people who cared about the same things you cared about. Mm -hmm. And when you had those terrible moments when you didn't win, they were there with you. And when you had something to celebrate, they were there. So it was hard, hard work, but it was emotionally gratifying in the sense that you were in a context that you thought you were accomplishing something important with other people who cared about what you cared about.
0: And that kind of touches on what Angela Duckworth says about purpose having that meaning the other centered kind of philosophy um do you feel like that time has helped you a lot in your where you're at today or a combination or are we gonna get to something that (laughs) like really grew you in some I mean your toolbox as a lawyer has to be huge but was that part of your journey that you've feel like toughened you up or made you realize how important it is to have, you know, a good workplace environment?
1: Um, One of the things you're supposed to do as a lawyer, and I think most lawyers do this, um, plug for lawyers. We're not near as evil as you think we are. (laughs) We're mostly good-hearted people who work very hard. Um, You're supposed to do pro bono hours, meaning you do work for free. And one of the things I've done from the time, I, I couldn't do anything. When you work for the federal government as a law clerk to a federal judge, that's all you do. Mm-hmm. And so for those 10 years, that's all I did. But when I went into private practice, I have been representing death row inmates for free. I mean, that's in addition to like my, my job, mm-hmm. my paid job. Right. <laughs> and uh, the first one I won, the second one I lost and he was executed, and the third one we're almost to the end. Well, so, you have to get the rest of the story later.
0: Ooh, a little teaser. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, he is on death row, is like one person that we won is no longer on death row. One person was executed, and this man probably in the next six months will know the answer.
0: And so, do you think this is like that's how your time working in that situation has been?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't have understood death penalty law, which is very, you know, it's very isolated and very technical. And so I had an opportunity to learn that in an environment with other people that knew that. And I've had this opportunity to work with other people Mm
2: -hmm.
1: who care about the same things. And I wouldn't have known about those things without the prison time, without without doing my prison
0: time. Oh my gosh. That's for another episode. no. Okay, so let's move on then to your favorite time. You said 10 years serving um, a what?
1: I was a law clerk to a local church. Yes.
0: And so why did you enjoy that so much?
1: You know, this move was the same thing. I had four little kids. Mm-hmm. Um, youngest was three, so three, five, seven, and nine. And um, the prison job was just emotionally. It was just brutal. I mean, it just was. It, as as much as I learned, as much as I loved it, it was hard. The federal clerkship. I worked for a person that I loved. My yes. next, the next in my mentor list, yes. um, just the most brilliant man ever, frankly, yes. <laughs> and also big-hearted and just a good, good person. And my job was to read and write and argue with my judge. That's all oh, I did. I mean, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't practice in the sense I didn't present in front of juries or anything like that. Um, a law clerk listens to the presentations in court and reads all of the paper, and then you go back and you do the research into the law, and then you do whatever your judge tells you. My judge would have me draft, do first drafts of opinions, and we started out on the district bench, meaning that, We actually did trials, and then he was appointed by the president while I was there to the Fifth Circuit, so he was an appellate judge. And so we would listen to the oral arguments, and we would read all the briefs, and we would do the research, and then we would draft an opinion for the judge, and he would edit it or tell you you were wrong. And he wanted all of his law clerks to come in, and we would sit in his office, and he would challenge us, and we would argue with him. (laughs) and he loved that (laughs) and like at first it was very intimidating like this guy that's a federal judge and you're the baby lawyer Mm -hmm. and you're going oh judge, you're wrong
0: (laughs) and so you had to
1: like really get past that so you could be useful to him Mm -hmm. um but again i that was the best job but in some ways the
0: easiest job Mm. okay so pause here for a second because I'm thinking like, okay, aside from the J.C. Penny crafting job, this is like the job for you. But you said, you, or what I'm inferring is that when he challenged you as a newbie, he was also trying to help grow you or coach Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yes. How do you think he did that, at least really well for you, and then were there any people in that room that didn't last and... Like was it a revolving door, or was everyone there people that also loved the challenge? And
1: um, every everybody that got that job had done super well in law school. Okay, I mean you don't even get to apply for that job unless you yeah. have like this, you know, yeah. the credentials to apply. Um, so everybody that got there was super, super smart and almost always very ambitious. I mean okay. that those jobs are hard to get, and that's the people that get those jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, I will say, this is an example. There was an individual who worked with us who was very shy. And so when the judge would challenge him, he he was super bright and would do great work, except for the part where he had to talk to the judge. Mm. And when he had to do that in front of just three or four people, he would stutter and blush and hang his head and say something sort of off topic or you know, sort of bad piece of humor or something. You know what I mean? He just was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the judge would say, John, go write me a memo. (laughs) John, go write me a memo. And that just meant you're not being useful to me. You're not sharpening my thinking. You're not helping me work through this logic problem. You're not helping me see the other side of the argument. Mm -hmm. Because you're too shy to... I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't intelligent. Right. So he would be sent to his room (laughs) to write a memo because he couldn't do the oral part. So yes, there were people... uh, I mean, and he was the most extreme example. Everybody had sort of a learning curve where you had to be sort of bold with your judge. and, And if you weren't able to bring that challenge to him, you weren't helping.
0: Yeah. I think the book talks about that too, where people might have the talent or their credentials but they lack, you know, the getting knocked down and getting back up again and you use the word ambition. Um so it's nice to see again that play out in real oh, world scenarios. Very that, much. Like just because you come with this great resume there's still that added x factor that you need to be able to continue to grow and and move forward. So how do you think then that he helped develop that and you can speak for your own behalf cuz it's probably a little different for everybody but what do you think helped, you know, why do you think you loved him so much, or how, how did he help you grow?
1: I think intellectually, he was, um, I'd never caught up with him. Okay. And you really, really value that, mm-hmm. that you think ever. I'd never walked into the office that I wasn't smarter when I left that day. Mm. I mean, he was just so far ahead of normal human beings. Mm. He was so smart. And it wasn't just intelligence. It was about, he not only knew what the law was, which every good lawyer and every good judge you know, has that sense. He was always thinking about where the law should go. Mm. And so he was very forward thinking. And so no matter how smart you were, how far you'd gotten, every conversation with him, you felt like you moved forward. And that never ended. In ten years it never ended.
0: So he always seemed to be growing, which then almost is contagious. And you're yes. like, Well man, if he's still running, I can't quit. Like he's going, I gotta follow, I gotta keep He, keep up the pace. Yes,
1: I think that's 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 very true. I um never ever felt like I caught up with him. And never had a conversation that I didn't come back with like, Oh, I hadn't thought of it or I hadn't looked at it from that angle or
2: mm-hmm.
1: um here's this other factor that I hadn't been factoring in, or what, you know, if you do this, what about the unintended consequences of a particular ruling? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you grew every day, and I that know. was so fun.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good observation for anyone in a leadership role, like stepping back and thinking of different conversations I've had with different people in all sorts of jobs and careers. A lot of times they're frustrated with their bosses not in a sense that like i could do their job but it's almost like they've stopped growing and that communicates this level of like y'all don't need to grow i'm not growing and a lot of people the book says this too a lot if there's nothing wrong with being okay staying where you're at until retirement that's all good but there are a lot of people that want more and how do you do that and so i can see it be frustrating If your supervisor, leader, doesn't have a growth mindset and isn't feeding you to help you grow, that if that's what you're looking for, you'd feel that lack and that frustration. So,
1: Well, and I think that I didn't know I needed that or that I wanted it. Although I think I've always had a sense of, I want to be in a room with smart people because Mm -hmm. it's just more fun. I mean, just sort of that level, but never in the sense of, I wanted Judge Parker because I wanted to grow. I mean, right. I wasn't able to articulate that need until I'd already found it. In other words, I found it, and then I realized how much I needed it, mm-hmm. as opposed to I needed it and I went out and looked for it. Right, right.
0: Cool. Okay, so you did that for 10 years?
1: 10 years.
0: So then why did you make the next change? No,
1: because my judge was going to retire. Oh, I, I would have stayed no. I would have stayed with him forever. I would have done that job for It was clearly the very best job in the world. I love my job now and I don't want to say, oh, I have a bad job now compared to that. It's just that it was, e- frankly, it was easier because mm-hmm. it was all, it was primarily intellectual.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You read and you wrote and you talked
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you didn't have to worry about the business part of it. You didn't have to worry about was your client going to pay you or if you hadn't won and you didn't get paid for that job, then how were you going to pay your staff and the light bill? Mm-hmm. Um, and all the and how are you going to bring in the next new client? And if I don't do well in this hearing, then the guy in sitting in the back who's watching me is never going to hire me because I'm not going to be effective, and so I'm not going to get hired. So it's all of those sort of the business of practicing law mm-hmm. that didn't exist in that job. Yeah, and I can't tell you how draining it is, <laughs> and how much energy and time it takes to deal with oh and you have to hire people and sometimes you have to fire them mm-hmm. and it's a business and you own a business and you have to do all of that before you get to practice law mm-hmm. and in that job you just showed up and the government paid your salary mm-hmm. <laughs> because you were that's who you worked for and it wasn't a particularly handsome rich salary but it was adequate and Generous, I thought for me, I thought it was
0: um, doing what you loved. It yeah, was the great, and it, it was <laughs> right.
1: I never went to you know none of my children went to school barefooted. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't wealthy, but I mean we didn't do without anything.
2: Right.
1: Um, so then you have to go and do the business of lawyering, and you have to do all of that. And sometimes it takes up three fourths of your time mm-hmm. before you ever get to the part that you are lawyering.
0: Right. Yeah. So. It, where does this factor with opening your own practice? Did he retire and you opened your own practice, or did he retire and you went to work for another law firm?
1: I went to work for someone else, and from there, went to work for another big law firm. And then my partner and I split off from the big law firm and we started our own firm um, because it was the right thing to do at the time from a business perspective. We weren't um, in mesh with our firm Mm -hmm. from a business perspective they were making decisions that we thought we couldn't support Mm -hmm. so it was a tough decision it was hard um and it made our lives harder in some ways easier in some ways um our firm is much smaller than the one we split off from
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so there are less conflicts
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um so, I mean, it's it's all good, but it's just, it's, it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of risk, and with risk comes throwing up in the bathroom, and yeah. Yeah. still, you know, and fixing your mascara and going out and smiling, because you can't let anybody see you sweat. I mean, so there's a lot of that
2: mm-hmm. in
1: the business part of law. Yeah. And then, after you do all of that, you've got to show up in court and do the law part of law, <laughs> which is the part that people see and that you have to be good at, and that you love, but... Mm-hmm you don't realize how sometimes it's, you have to do a lot of work before you get to do that part.
0: I'm noticing two patterns. The first is, and the book talks about this as well, the Grit by Angela Duckworth, that you do a better job when it aligns with your moral values. And so if we look back at what we've talked about already, some of the job changes were because your moral values was that family's important. But then this, Going from working for a law firm to opening your own also had to do with aligning your your morals, your views, and what you think was right and wrong. Um, My second point is I think it's important to set context for the listeners, too, that especially in patent law, what are the ratios or percentages of like males to females in that world?
1: Um, Getting better all the time. I've spent most of my life uh, in a room full of men. And the only females in the room have been staff people. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them, brighter than me, should have been lawyers. Um, But so many, so many days of my life, I'm the only girl in the room.
0: So, you know, I think there's a level of grit, and we've talked about this before, that, like, you can't walk into a room full of men and be like, my kid woke up throwing up at 2 in the morning last night, or, you know, woe is me with, like, Mom, women issues because that would, I mean, how would I don't want to explain it the wrong way? How would you explain kind of having to? Oh,
1: I had this wonderful mom story. Okay, Okay. as a lawyer, and it's it's an it's a grit moment because you just have to swallow and get over it. I was pregnant, um, with Jacob, Mm -hmm. two little girls at home, Um, had just become a lawyer. I mean, just a year or two before that. Pregnant, in court with my client, um, and I was at a docket call, meaning there was lots and lots of people there, like a hundred probably people, not lawyers, but people with their clients in this room, and a fairly uh, old white male judge, and I wasn't the only female lawyer in the room, but maybe one of two or three, and I was pregnant and had on maternity clothes. I mean, I was dressed professionally, but I was clearly, like, big and pregnant, mm-hmm. and I stood up, they called my case, and I stood up, and I said, you know, I'm Elizabeth DeRue, and I'm here on the such-and-such such case, and we're ready to proceed, Your Honor, and the judge said, little lady, do you have a lawyer with you?
2: Oh,
1: no. <laughs> and my client is standing right next to me, and I said, yes, Your Honor. I am the lawyer. You know, it's like, you're lawyer. trying to... Yes, Your Honor, I am the lawyer, you know. Um, and he didn't do it. I, At the time, I felt humiliated, but he didn't do it to be mean to me.
2: Yeah.
1: He just did... He just made the assumptions from his background.
2: Mm-hmm. He
1: was an older lawyer, and when he went to law school, there probably were no women in his law school class. He just came from an environment where no woman a pregnant woman in a court could have been the lawyer. That mm. just wasn't within his experience. So it wasn't that he was being mean to me, but it certainly was a set of expectation, expectations that I met every day of my life,
2: yeah. professionally. Man, that must be hard.
1: Oh, pretty soon you just don't care. I mean, yeah. at part, like as that young pregnant girl, I was very humiliated, but over time, I got to where I truly didn't care and as I cared less, my male colleagues cared less and so the barriers really broke down sort of naturally because I forgot I was a girl or I stopped <laughs> thinking that I oh I'm the girl here so I have to like behave in a certain way or I have to like you know be careful of somebody's ego. And I just sort of got over that. Yeah. And so I just stopped thinking about myself as the only girl in the room, even though I still was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as recently as last year, I tried two cases where I was the only, fe- in, in cases that are like great big cases with lots and lots of lawyers, and I was the only female lawyer in either one of those cases. Uh, although, I'll say, things are better now, and things are better even than the last 10 years. Many times, I'm now not the only woman lawyer in the yeah. room.
0: Do you get like a little like wave across the room, or like yeah, girl power, or <laughs> is it just mutually understood and you guys still play it cool? <laughs>
1: um, there is a docket call that we go to quite often. That um, not not this year, but recently, there were like 150 lawyers in the room, and there are about seven of us that, and we all know each other,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so we would count, and we would walk out the back door of the room, and after court and say, I think there were seven
0: today. (laughs) Oh, see? Y'all need a little Facebook group, too. That's awesome. So now that you've been practicing law and then you have your own firm, which was probably exciting at some points, but then like you kind of alluded to is like, well, now the only thing is the part you enjoy is, you know, split and less because you have all these other responsibilities to do. Um, How do you keep interest in law Um, some people once they become a professional whether it's a teacher or whatever their job is they'll stick with it for a while but then like boredom will set in or there's this bright new shiny opportunity over here and they'll completely change career fields which as we talked earlier isn't necessarily a bad thing but if you feel like that's your purpose and your calling how what do you do to keep it entertaining or um, fight it, when it's a mundane situation, or maybe you're having a rough time at work, what do you do to combat those feelings?
1: Um, I'm actually at the point where I could retire. Mm-hmm. I know I'm old. <laughs> no, I'm not like
0: that. But We're I'm old already. enough. We're I'm already.
1: <laughs> I am old enough that I have colleagues who are my age who have retired, um, and I certainly could. So that is an option. And I think I'm going to retire someday. Um, I also have friends who have retired that I talk about this with them. And they talk about their lives and what they enjoy and, you know, whether or not they think retirement was a good idea. Some of them have been cycled back into some other career or into a uh, sort of a consulting role in their old career. So I see, again, lots of people who are ahead of me, and um, I have to say, shout out to Pete Adams, my husband, who also is an attorney, and uh, when he retired, who and he retired about at my age, left the practice of law entirely behind, and opened a bookstore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we, I, I get to enjoy that with him,
2: yeah,
1: um, and I love it, but... It's hard to express how much he loves it. He works harder now um, however long this has been, thirteen years into retirement, he is still physically schlepping boxes of books around I mean physically just really a tough job
2: mm-hmm.
1: and emotionally because it's also the money and the you know the employees and the paying light bill and all of that and you think, well, you're going to spend so many hours in the bookstore because that's the hours that the bookstore is open, and so you're dealing with the public. And then on top of that, he has to um, acquire inventory. So I'm just saying that he works harder now as the owner of a bookstore than he worked, I don't want to say that, yeah. harder than he worked as a lawyer. I think that's true, though.
0: Yeah, if we asked him, he'd probably say that. Yeah, yeah. I
1: think so, too. So... Um, He's obviously an example of a person who's ahead of me who I'm coming along behind and um, learning from. And his answer to that question is he retired, completely left the law behind, did something else that he really, really loves. Mm-hmm. And loves so much that he does it every day, sometimes 10 hours a day, and almost every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, seven days a week. Yes. Yeah. Because he loves it so much. So there, I mean, so there's an, an example of somebody who really left the law behind, quote retired, but started this brand new life. Mm-hmm. I also know people who retired from really satisfying careers and they have the more sort of traditional, oh, we travel some and we, you know, visit Pibling. friends Pibling. and yeah. I like to fish. And, mm-hmm. So I, and, and. I want to say that I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to do that because I do have things I enjoy. Yeah, um, I can read, and I can do needlework, and I can spend time with my family. and So that's what I consider sort of the more traditional retirement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm not there today, yeah. <laughs> so tomorrow I'm going back to work.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm going to the office tomorrow. So in case you were wondering if I've talked myself out of it. <laughs>
0: We're not holding our breath over here. Well, what do you think keeps you working? What is it about it that draws you
1: back? Um, okay, you'll be my therapist for a moment. Yes. Fear. Fear. Because what if I get old and sick and I don't have money mm-hmm. or some, I need, some, you know, whatever, I lose my medical care and I need some expensive operation and then I need around the clock
0: care and Can we tell people that you're looking forward <laughs> to like the retirement home and the little activities and like, put I Oh
1: mean, yeah, like yeah. like we have a deal. Jacob knows his role in this that one of the kids has to show up every Sunday afternoon and push me in the wheelchair out into the sunshine and blow the stink off of me. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> So I think that that part would be sort of, you know, like, I, I think that that's going to be a part of my life. But the truth is that um, there is fear. There's the fear of I can walk into a room, many, many rooms, many days of my life. And I have spent all these years getting to the point of my career where I walk in and I'm the one with the answers. Or I'm the one that that somebody respects or someone turns to for help and that's very gratifying Mm -hmm. and if I didn't have that I would miss it yeah I mean I just think that that's again you have to be my therapist here no
0: that's part of the passion
1: yeah well and I think though that it's also part of I probably need a therapist and I need to deal with fear about like not having enough money or needing care and I'm not ever probably going to be good at relying on other people the idea that I would have to ask someone else for help Mm is not attractive to me. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that um, if you go all the way back to sort of like how I was raised and sort of self-sufficiency, that those were very high values. Mm. And I don't know if if I'm right that my parents valued that and that's why I do it or I I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not sure why. But self-sufficiency is huge. And that idea that I have worked very hard to take care of myself and my family and I don't ask other people for help. Mm-hmm. And to give that up, mm. to walk away from it and not have it anymore, is scary.
0: This is the conversation I needed to have with Jacob, but he's like, oh, no. So this is perfect. <laughs> this is perfect, yes. Well, and I don't, I wouldn't say it's like a stubborn thing or a pride thing. I like that you used a so you value it. And not that it makes you better than anyone else or anything like that, that you just value that about yourself, about the self-sufficiency. I like the way you phrased all that. Because other people can be like, not necessarily about Jacob and, of course, not about you, but just like, oh, that person's uh, too prideful to ask for help or they're just stubborn and those all have negative connotations where really it's just back to your core values and belief and what you're striving for. So,
1: But I think it's also part of me sometimes like, I'm in a study where, or I'm reading a book where they say, "Well, you need to acknowledge, you know, the pride and get rid of it." And it's like if it's a spiritual sort of growth thing that that's one of the things that we try to address and try. That's a growth that we need. And I'll just say, since I was 18, when we get to that chapter in the Bible, I raised my hand to say, "Yes, I need to work on that." And here we are. I'm well into my sixties, and I'm saying, "Yeah, still need work on that," yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean to be cavalier about that no. or flip it. It's no. important, and I do understand the importance. But and I also understand that I'm not good at that, and I'm not sure how to get good at it. Yeah, I mean, I've given some thought to it. I've read books. I've, you know, I've seen the value of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I just the idea that I would have to rely on someone else. And not be the person who's helping or the person who's yeah. someone else turns to for the answers, that's scary to me.
2: Where did,
0: okay, but Pete, though, <laughs> you let him love like in a loving real way, right? Oh yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Aside from Christmas jammy duty, I don't thank <laughs> you ever. Tell really them the him the truth. But this
1: is the deal: our family, all from all the way from Grandpa Pete down to the youngest baby who just got born, has to wear matching jammies to the pajama party at Christmas. In mm-hmm. our family, that's part of the rules. Some uh, people participate more willingly than others.
0: <laughs> but everyone participates.
1: <laughs> but everybody participates. Yes. And um, I've already acknowledged that I'm not a shopper. Mm-hmm. I don't do shopping. I'm not good at it. I don't enjoy it. And just recently, mm-hmm. Farron has stepped up to the plate on the buying the pajamas. You have to find them. You have to find them that they all match and they come in every single size and shape that a human being could be made in mm-hmm. uh, in order for our entire family to have matching jammies and parent has done that for like at least two years,
0: right? I love to help. And like you said earlier, you don't ask for help very often. And you didn't even ask, but I just
1: so I just that. love that so much, yes. though. You know, I don't like to shop. I mean, that's shopping. Yes.
0: So I feel like, you see, you're starting to let people help with, like, the things you're totally okay with. Like, yeah, like I, like, I absolutely am here to say I don't like this. You can help me with it. Uh, yes. Um, so we've covered a lot of the content in the book and a lot of... Your life. There were just a couple of more things that um, we haven't really touched on. Um, what's your opinion on, on hope? It talks about two kinds of hope. Hope like, okay, if I just keep wishing and sitting here, someday it's going to come to me. Versus having a positive outlook on the future and taking steps in the direction you're wanting to head. How would you talk about hope? Or what does hope mean to you?
1: I'm trying to think about, like, I, th- I think this is almost a cliche mm-hmm. among people who are my age, that we had this childhood where nobody uh, orchestrated things for us. We were really, truly just sent out mm-hmm. to play outside. Yeah. And it was up to us. We could make friends. We could climb a tree if we fell down out of the tree short of, like, a bone being broken You just got up, and um, so we had a lot of, I think, maybe freedom, and it was freedom from our parents' fears. When my children got to that stage, and they were going to ride their bicycle around the block, they had a certain amount of freedom, but it was smaller than mine. Now, I see my grandkids, Mm -hmm. when they're sent out into the world, their parents are... um, more involved closer to them the dangers are perceived differently probably yeah. are different it's it's the world is different and i don't know how to fix that i mm-hmm. don't think that the answer is just send your kids outside yeah <laughs> and let them be on their own and let them you know if there's a molester in the neighborhood well she'll deal with it i mean that was right. true i mean like when we were growing up nobody in my family said oh it's after dark. What if Betty was um, kidnapped. kidnapped by a molester? No one ever said that. They said, she better get her butt back in. she knows it's dark. <laughs> and I'm just saying that the world yeah. is different. And I, I don't know how to give that experience to my Tori or my Brianna or my Gabby, which I want them to have, but I also want them to be safe. Yeah. And the world is different. And I don't, I don't know the answer about how we give that to them. But I will say, I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And if there was a way to figure out how to give it to them, I would want to. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of what we talk about is grit. It was just a matter of there was no grown-up to save me. Yeah. If somebody hurt my feelings and I had to cry about it,
2: yeah,
1: I just had a good cry. Yeah. <laughs> or if I had to poke them in the eye with a sharp stick. <laughs> I mean, there was no grown-up to mediate that for me, mm-hmm. and so I learned to do it. Every every not me, especially, but every kid learned to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you lost at baseball, or that's the other thing is like nobody said, "Oh, Betty, you're just such a cute little nerd. You don't <laughs> have to like compete on races or baseball."
2: Yeah,
1: it was like. No, I had to go out and play in the neighborhood. And if I wasn't fast enough to win the race, I lost. And mm. I was sad and I ran faster or I tried harder, so, you know. But no grown-up fixed that for me. Right. And I think that that's what I want to give the little ones. Mm-hmm. But I don't, know, I don't know how exactly.
0: Yeah. I'll let you know when I figured out. <laughs> so, like, when you guys had hopes or dreams, you just, like, were brave. Like, I would think brave in the perspective of where we're at now and you just went and did and tried and if it didn't work you could either leave it or try something different and you just went and did
1: right and that every it. every child sort of had that experience i think right. that that was a tip uh, not every child it was a fairly typical experience of yeah. a child that's how you grew up and i you know i don't know that i would say that my parents were loved me and i was very yeah. confident of that they loved me and thought I was a smart, wonderful kid. Did
0: some... Baby of the family would say
2: that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I just, and, and I actually think that I went to school and my teachers thought I was smart. Mm-hmm. And so there were lots and lots of people in my life that thought I was a smart, neat kid. And so did I internalize that? Yeah, I thought I was a smart, neat kid.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not because I necessarily was. You know what I mean? It's like not because I wasn't smarter or neater than other kids, but because that's, What the message I was getting from my parents, from my older siblings, from my teachers. Mm -hmm. And so you do get hope from that because then if somebody says, okay, Betty, you're a smart, neat kid, and something bad happens to you, you don't say, oh, I must be dumb or ugly. Right. You think, oh, I gotta try again because I'm the smart, neat kid. I love that. Or like when law school got hard, I mean, I never went to school. I never, I mean, this is just my experience. Yeah. I was always the smartest kid in the room. Always. That I probably wasn't, but that was my experience. From the time I was in kindergarten, I was the kid that could already read. I went to Lamar and it's a I was the big fish in the little pond. I was the vice president of the student body and the president of the student senate and president of all whatever it was I wanted to be president of, and I would walk in. And my professor honestly, I was like twenty-one years old, right? Pretty naive. My professor would call the role, and they would, they would get my name, and he would look over his glasses, and he'd say, You're White Jacobs' kid, aren't you? I'd say yes, because mm-hmm. my daddy taught at the, the school where I went to undergrad. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew my daddy, and lo- I, I think they all loved him. I loved him. I thought he was fabulous. So I had this experience that I was the best person in the room.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not because I was, but because that was my experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I went to law school. And my daddy didn't teach there. Oh, no. <laughs> and you had to be that smart to get into law school. In other words, it was only the smart kids got in, right? Right. And so suddenly I looked around in law school and I was like, oh, my God, I'm not the smartest kid in the room. But you know what happened? It was like I thought I was, so I, st- I worked harder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. So, I mean, in some ways, like what I want to give to my Tori is like, mm-hmm. You're the smartest kid in the room. Yeah. Because in case there's ever a point in her life where she's not, Mm -hmm. I want her internally to think she
0: is. Yeah. (laughs) Self-fulfilling prophecies, but like with a positive twist, for sure.
1: Well, I just think that that's something that... I think there's actually studies, and she talks about that in the book. If you expect more from a child, Mm -hmm. they give you more. Yep.
2: I agree.
1: And when there's... Like, if you could somehow objectively test... Did the kid you expected the most from actually have the most to begin with? Probably not. Right. And I will say that that's probably Betty. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the smartest kid in the room,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but I thought I was.
2: Yeah, well, I love that.
0: I don't know what the answer is for trying to replicate those experiences like your generation had. I think hearing you talk about it, it was just natural. A lot of that was typical, is the word you use. And so I think nowadays, We'd have to be very, very intentional and consistent to replicate some type of similar experience for kids these days but yeah.
1: and somebody would like jump into your life and like be all nasty to you like yeah. what you don't you don't love your children like you let them ride on their bicycles and it's after dark and they're not home yet yeah they would just be all over you you know what I mean it's yeah. just like it's not only that I, every, I mean the world is different and I don't know how to go back and I don't know how you would choose to set up your life to where you could even give that to the child because that's not what the world is like anymore mm-hmm. We've talk- that wasn't very hopeful was
0: it? <laughs> oh, I think it's something to think about though in, in each of our situations see what we can do in our own little world and to remind ourselves that you know Oh, just other people's opinions. That could be a whole other podcast episode, too. Um, last thing, and then if there's anything else you want to close with, but um, what do you think parenting children, and I feel like we're already going down this route, parenting children to be gritty, what does that look like? And I know you have four. <laughs> and I talk about like me and my three siblings, and then like my three kids. They look alike, but they're so different. <laughs> And so, what is your opinion on trying to raise a child to have grit? What would some of those things look like?
1: I think some very, very simple things, which is when a child says, Can you tie my
0: shoe? Oh,
1: gosh. Please don't (laughs) lie. I've heard that one before. Well, I was trying to think of an example that everybody's encountered. No, that's fine. And then and then, by the time they're old enough to say, can you tie my shoe? I think the right answer is, let me help you learn to tie your shoe. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a very intentional and just completely draining part of parenting. Mm-hmm. And I will say that um, Damon was better at that than I was. <laughs> Much better. He was better at... Okay, right over left, make the bunny ears, tuck this one over that one a million times over and over and over. And so I think that idea of, and that's just an, I mean, that's just one little bitty Uh tiny thing, but your day as a parent is full of them. Mm -hmm.
0: I can't cut this string. Yeah, I can't reach the TV remote an inch away from me. Yeah,
2: right. Or,
0: I need
1: some water.
0: Oh, I wanted three ice cubes, <laughs> not
1: two. Oh my god! And so I think that there are those kinds of experiences where you can say, "Do it yourself, kid."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, although, as a parent, I will say, it, "I I wasn't the best parent at that." Even though I value it, mm-hmm. I think that too many times I said, "Let me tie that shoe," yeah. <laughs> or "Let me get those ice cubes," yeah. or what you know, whatever. So I think that that's just a self criticism. I could have done that much better. I think the other thing is, and this is another thing that I think I'm qualified to say because I did it wrong. Um, I wanted my kids to love and be successful at the things I loved and were successful at. And it took my children to teach me that they had strengths and interests and things they were good at that I didn't even get.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, And so I say to the young version of myself let them be themselves let them have their own things that they are interested in and this is the example that i would use in my family i gave birth to four athletes yeah and there is no indication in any part of my (laughs) being that i would give birth to a single athlete which i think if is probably a different book it's about the part of god having a sense of humor Mm -hmm. that he would give four athletes to me that just seems crazy and Mm -hmm. funny and he probably got lots of fun out of that Um, but my children taught me about athletics, the value of them and what you can learn from them and how hard they are and how good, you know, how good they can be for you as a person in other areas of your life. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of that, but my kids taught me that. And so I would say to my younger Betty self, let your kids teach you about that stuff you don't know. Don't insist that they take piano. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or, well, I mean, you can insist they take piano for right. five years or yeah. something. Yeah. But then let them up. Yeah. <laughs> Feed them, let them go on. Um, and I probably wasn't a great athlete's mom. I mean, I would show up at the games with a magazine. <laughs> and I would sit in the back of the stands and I would be there. Go, Jake! Good job! Hit that ball! And I'd go back and read my magazine. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that we can raise children. My point is, I think, we can raise children To be who they are Mm -hmm. rather than who we wanted to be or who we are. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so what's going to happen, I think, is that one of my athlete children is going to give birth to like a bookworm. (laughs) Maybe you have that person at your house. I think I do. (laughs) And so like then the athlete mom says to the bookworm baby, Uh
0: okay, we'll go to the library one more time. (laughs) If You'll tie your own shoes. yes. (laughs) Otherwise, we're not going to the library. That's your punishment. <laughs> and see, we came full circle in this. Podcast. I know, didn't we do good? It's funny that you say all that because the Betty I know now. I think you've been very supportive in your, you know, adult children's interests and all of that. So, but as a
1: baby mommy baby at mommy, twenty-four, okay. I had no idea. Oh, in fact, I was like. <laughs> If I told you stories about what kind of mommy I was at 24,
0: I was ridiculous. It probably would make me feel better because you're a pretty awesome mommy. So it's good to know that like...
1: <laughs> oh, like I can remember, like I wanted my kid to be the smartest kid in the class because that's who I thought I was. Right. Shuri was less than two years old. Like I wasn't, I didn't have my second baby who was born in 23 months, right? hmm I actually, we didn't have any money. I created flashcards oh. so she could learn to read and count.
2: That's impressive.
1: (laughs) No, it was horrible. She was like, yeah, can I have some ice cream? (laughs) And as it turned out, you know what? She um, learned to read and count exactly how I did. Like, you know, just sort of naturally in the world, my parents didn't do flashcards with me.
0: When
1: you were two? No, No. I'm positive they did not. (laughs) But I'm just saying that as a young mother, I was... Really devoted to the idea that I was going to make my children into little Betty's mm-hmm. because I thought that was like sort of the only I mean, that was the path I was familiar with in life,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it wasn't their path.
0: <laughs> so, you've recogni- I hear that you've recognized that what worked for you don't won't necessarily work for your kids, but do you think that you can have the same grit plan for each kid? Because each of your kids, not bad, just like m- me and my siblings, we're all still. Different. Very different, Like, yes. I think, and I mean this lovingly, that Sri was born with grit. I, I agree. <laughs> I don't think you had to do anything there. Um, so, uh, do you think you could approach, if someone has multiple children, can you approach them all with the same grit plan?
1: I think part of what, ha- and this is maybe true across our society, and this is a good thing, a good change, is that... Um, Fortunately for my children, I had a very demanding job their entire childhood, so I I wasn't around to ruin them. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> well, I mean, I could I could still expect a lot of them, but they got a break from me. Mm-hmm. And if they had had like me as a stay at home mom with these great high expectations and probably you know bad badly executed high expectations, I could have ruined them. And lucky for them, they got other they got grandparents and they got teachers and they got coaches, coaches. Mm-hmm. and they had all of those people and together we raised good kids mm-hmm. and that if all if and they probably had a lot of interaction with adults other than me because I did work all day
2: mm-hmm.
1: and when i got home i was exhausted mm-hmm. and so like the kids had to do things for themselves because mm-hmm. there just wasn't enough of me to go around mm-hmm. And so in some ways, that is a sort of a recipe for grit. The kids had to do things for themselves. They had to rely on people outside of our family. And if I had been a full-time stay-at-home mother with all my intensity and all my expectations, I would have ruined them.
0: They would have all been Shakespearean actors. Or no, they would have been (laughs)
1: resentful little piles of neuroses or something. (laughs) Because I think that it really was good for them to encounter other people's parents and babysitters and coaches because each one of those adults brought something to them most of which those little pieces that became a part of them that were very important were not pieces I had to give them Mm -hmm. so I really think that they they grew into who they were because they had some separation from me and I don't know if that's true of every parent but I was a little overbearing. You know, I'm a strong person. I always am. I'm very certain that I'm right, always. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, because you you pretty much are. Like, I can't think of a time that you weren't. So, there's that. No, and, and it talks about that, like, supportive parents, but that are, also have, like, limits and expectations. And so... I think he did it. I will say
1: that this is the other thing, and this came from my parents, certainly. And I replicated it without thinking about it and can only see it now in retrospect. My parents were very strict when I was little and very, I don't know how to say this, hands off as I grew into my teen years. And my daddy actually said expressly to me that he thought that I needed experience making mistakes while I was still at home. Because I would then come home to my little loving home and talk about my mistakes and maybe, you know, get some guidance about them. Mm -hmm. He didn't, he thought that he, if he helped me more make the right
0: decisions
1: as a teenager, I would not have the experience that I needed as like when I go whenever off into the world as an adult. And I think that I brought that to my kids. I think they had a lot more freedom as teenagers than maybe some of their peers did. Mm -hmm. So they made their own decisions. Some of them good, some of them bad. Mm -hmm. But this is public, so we can't go into all of those details. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just saying that as little kids, I was very, very tough on them. Mm -hmm. You've heard the story about, like, um, they had to make 100 on their spelling test um yeah jacob has also shared that story
0: and that sorting socks was punishment in the house and so now he will not sort socks because (laughs) Because i ruined him see i told you yes but i tricked the kids into like it's a matching game and so oh it's a
1: game pretty good for you i was i was not that clever i was like no i am not putting up with any more of your smart mouth so you go and do the sock bucket
0: no it's like whitewashing the fence i think it's the best game
1: ever. So. so I was very, very strict and very hard on them as young children. But I also think they had more freedom and more flexibility and more decisions to make on their own as teenagers. And so I, that's how I was raised. That's how I raised my children. I'm probably an advocate for that. Mm-hmm. There's probably lots of evidence that says I made mistakes. Oh. <laughs> that, there's, that had maybe not been the right approach, that I might have done some things differently but in terms of grit though i really think that that idea of having experience making mistakes and owning them Mm -hmm. and then figuring out how to fix them is like in in, i think in her words in the words of the book i mean that's one of the things that
2: define grit
0: Mm -hmm. have you heard of the new term called a lawnmower parent oh no they go in front of their kids to eliminate any obstacles. So it used to be oh, helicopter, right. which means like the second there was something, they swooped in and saved the day. But now there's lawnmower where like the kid doesn't even ever have to face because they just plow everyone down. Those kids will time. never learn to spell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, with technology these days, no. I, kids need to learn how to spell. You know, I, I said last thing, but there was one other um, topic in here that I was like, I don't know if I know that answer about you talks about having routines as like they studied all these experts from all these field different fields and their daily routines or habits were not the same but what was the same is they all had kind of daily routines that you know they attributed to their success mm-hmm. like i do know that you walk like right? d- obviously exercise but you've mentioned before it's kind of your relief from all the day's tension
1: OCD would be a good um, term to bring into this conversation oh, at this point. <laughs> I
0: would not have thought OCD. Why oh my do you gosh! Say OCD?
1: Oh, because I have to do the same thing in the same order every day professionally. Tell um, me,
0: tell me, like what? Walk I, into the office, put your key in a certain spot. What, what are we talking about?
1: Well, no, like I had, like um, if I get a phone call, mm-hmm. I have to return that phone call within twenty-four hours. Period. Okay. And anybody that works for me has to go by the same rule. Okay. And if you don't, you have to come in and talk to me about it. Mm. So, I mean. And sort the socks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. And so, um, I also have to clean my inbox every morning. Now, I don't do all the work. Like, if I have something that came in that's an assignment that that's going to take two hours, I don't instantly stop. I have to work through my entire inbox first thing in the morning as I have my first cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And then I mark the ones that need, you know, more, like if it's a, if it's a question, can you do a meeting at one o'clock? I can answer that one. Yeah. Yes. I'm available at one o'clock. But if it's like, can you do some research and answer this question? Then I mark that one. So by nine o'clock every morning, I have my to-do list and I've looked at everything that's come in overnight. I've returned every phone call. Um. I have a calendar that I check every morning and that I know exactly what calls or what meetings or what hearings are, you know, I'm facing. Mm -hmm. So, um, I do do the very same thing, the very same way in the very same order every day. Um, I own my own business. I could go in whenever I want to. I could leave whenever I want to. Mm -hmm. I, I probably can count on one hand how many times I have not been at the office by 830. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost always there by eight fifteen, because other people arrive at eight thirty, and I want that fifteen minutes
2: yeah.
1: to do whatever I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like I'm I'm very um, rigid about like what time I arrive at work, when I eat lunch, um, what order I do my like how I organize my day. I'm a huge list maker, mm-hmm. and if I have had a long day and I still have three things left on my list. I cannot go home. I have to finish my list. <laughs> or, I mean like, I mean that's not completely true. Like if it's something that can be put on tomorrow's list, but right. I have to have tomorrow's list made. Mm. I can't just have them open.
0: <laughs> you guys can't see my face, but I don't want you to misconstrue my face. My face is like I feel like I have gotten in the way of some of your habits and rituals before. <laughs> like the beach trip, like you're just checking your messages, and in your head you're probably like, if I could just do this, then I could have a conversation, but you keep talking to me while I'm trying to just get this done, and then, no, anyways. Well, that's all really interesting.
1: Well, I mean, it's, and it's not because I'm disciplined. I mean, and I guess that's what I was really, I'm sort of laughing about it, but it's not because I'm disciplined, and I don't say to myself, oh, in order to be successful, you have to do so, or to meet someone else's expectations. That's not true. Mm-hmm. I have to do it so that I can breathe. Because if I do get interrupted and I don't get that to do list made, or if I don't get through my emails and there's unread emails in my inbox that I don't know what's there, mm-hmm. like maybe I've read them and marked them unread, so unread emails are okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: if they're just marked. But if I truly don't know what it says, I can't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so no, this. I mean, grit is good. Neuroses. I mean, like it's a it's a it's a fuzzy line there.
2: No.
0: for sure <laughs> I mean, that was kind of what she alluded to is like, you know, if you think, you know, um, Dak Prescott's the best quarterback and you want to be the best quarterback, and so you're going to do what his daily routine looks like, like that might not work for you. And it might, you might even be appalled or think it's crazy when you look it up, but it works for him. How did you, like, figure out that that's what you needed? Is it you did it a few times and you're like, wow, I feel so much better? And that's what I'm going to do.
1: Yeah, I think that um, it it would be hard to express um, accurately how neurotic I am and how that really interferes with my ability to breathe or to have a conversation or to think. So it's not like I made a decision and said, let's try this. Let's just see if we could be more successful and make more money or win more cases if we did it this way. That's way more rational than it really is. It really is. I can't stand that there are six clients who have written to me and I don't know what the email says. I don't know if the email says, hey,
2: mm-hmm.
1: great job, or hey, you're fired, yeah, or hey, there's a hearing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Can you be there? Until I know what it says, I mean, it doesn't matter how good or bad it is. I can deal with it, but okay. I have to know what it says.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's not a matter of, I made a decision to organize my day in this way because it was healthy and wonderful. No, I'm just trying to survive here.
0: (laughs) Something you just said sparked another question too. Um, You said to, you know, when you're talking about making the business more money or leads to more success, do you like consciously set goals and have like a tactical plan for, like, if this is the goal you want, like a plan to get there, or, I mean. Are you just inspired? I don't know. Do you have? Part of having a partnership,
1: a sm- you know, a, a small firm, is that you work very closely with that one other person. Mm-hmm. And I will say that Calvin and we, we, laugh, we laugh about this all the time. We're completely opposite. And together, we're a whole person. Together, we're a whole lawyer. Okay. <laughs> because we really complement each other. But we're very, very, very different people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Um, A lot of things I've learned from him. Um, I'm actually a little bit older than he is, but I still learn from him every day. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the business decisions, we've had to consciously talk through and make decisions. Like, are you going to have a law firm that represents only plaintiffs or only defendants? Or are you going to have hourly or contingent cases? So business decisions. And so we made some very, very conscious decisions. Not because I was smart enough to do that on my own, but together, as we worked together, we had to reach decisions and then be completely bought in from both of us for us to be successful. Mm -hmm. So I I guess my answer is credit to my law partner, yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) He's more of the planner in the goal aspect. And you're like, what's our challenge today? I'm ready, let's go.
1: Or I'm like... Um, let me just calm my mind so I know what's expected of me and I can succeed and be wonderful. And he's more like, but how are we going to uh, deal with this problem that's two years out? Mm-hmm.
2: Okay.
1: and I got it. So then and that's, and until he raised the question, I didn't know it was a question, so mm-hmm. I wasn't worried about it. Mm-hmm. But once he brought it up, then together we work together. And
0: yeah. Do you feel like you achieve most of the goals you've set? in life, like, um, professionally. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I figured it was a yes. But <laughs> I also don't know, like, what goals you would have in your, you know, your Well, and, and or... it.
1: I think that probably, again, I, I don't want to, like, leave the impression that I'm this, like, emotionally healthy person who does this all right. I'm just saying that I obsess over things and... I am very competitive, and I have to win, and so a lot of these things that I've achieved maybe didn't come from the healthiest spot, (laughs) and that I would say the things that I would want to achieve that I haven't achieved, and this may just be because of my age, I think that are more, I want more psychological health, or I want more spiritual health, or I want more growth in that realm like I don't go to bed at night saying I want to make more money next year Mm. I'm I'm okay with that part but I do go to bed at night saying well I didn't handle that well or if I'd been a little more insightful I would have handled that conversation differently or I would have handled that question from the judge differently so I would need growth and I think that's the part that I go to bed at night thinking I'm not there yet. I do need more. But is it, do I need more money or do I need to win a bigger case? The answer is, nope, I'm good on all that.
0: Well, I think gritty gritty people are always looking for ways to improve. Sometimes in a business sense or other times in a personal sense. But I appreciate you you being very transparent and open with that because, again, I think sometimes we look at these gritty people and think, oh, it's just easy for them. Or they don't have these thoughts and feelings like I have and that's why they are so accomplished or where they're at.
1: No, it's because they're more neurotic than you are.
0: (laughs) They just hide it well.
2: (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, that's true. I mean, that's the other thing is that you do, at least in my field, there is the aspect of... um, appearing confident and successful and so you do consciously make an effort to wear the right shoes or to have the right posture or the right manners or whatever.
0: Brooke talks about this too with her players that like when she was coaching high school soccer I don't care how tired you are how defeated you think you are you do not let the other team see you, you know hands on your knees sitting on the ground at halftime you're standing your hands down by your side you know it does. That is a definitely tactic in um, competition, for sure.
1: Yes. For sure. Oh yeah. And um, well, she's training baby lawyers. She just didn't there know
0: it. Know. I'll tell her to start. <laughs> Why don't you go take the LSAT? Yeah, and then <laughs> she can laugh when someone's like, "Guess what? I became a lawyer." <laughs> well, that wraps up a lot of my questions. Is there any closing thought you have, or any encouragement for people that? either wanting to be more gritty or want to raise their children gritty or are thinking about, you know, make be making a different career change. You got lots of options here. Is there anything that you want to wrap up with?
1: She says this so well in the book and I I I think it really is core for me is that you gotta love it. If you're doing it to impress somebody else or to prove to your parents or your peers or someone else it's not going to work it's not going to it might work but you won't have that ultimate grittiness that ability to overcome the inevitable defeats Mm -hmm. if it's not really yours if you don't own it and i'm not saying okay you have to own this goal and you can somehow make yourself own the goal i'm just saying it's more about know yourself Mm -hmm. Um, and if you know yourself and you know what makes you happy and you know what makes you feel satisfied and makes you sleep well at night, then those are the places you're going to be gritty. And don't make yourself be gritty somebody in somebody else's arena or, or for someone else's goals. Because I think the answer is, I don't think that ever completely works.
0: Yeah, I like what you said, that inevitably... You're going to hit a wall, have a challenge, have some type of obstacle. And you can really want it, but again, if you're not passionate and love it.
1: If you love it for someone else, it's not the same. It's not enough. Nope. If I want it because I think my mommy wants it for me, it's not enough. Because things are going to get bad. They they have been bad for me. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be bad for everybody. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And when they get that bad, if it's not your personal goal... Somebody else wanting it is not enough.
0: Yeah. I love it. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for Thank sharing you. your story and your wisdom and your precious <gasps> hours on the weekend.
1: I forgot to tell you. What? That I worked as a security guard when I was in oh, yes. law school. Okay, we
0: have, to, we have to end with this story because this is probably, out of all of Jacob's favorite stories, this is one of his favorite.
1: Okay, I don't even know what part of it he thinks is cool. Oh, well, I can that, tell
0: you if you don't say it, so go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Um. Okay. I got a job when I was in law school, and I worked all night. and but um Why?
0: Cause I don't, I haven't heard this part. Like, why? What made you say we were I broke? Need to
1: be a security guard? Oh, actually, what they they needed someone to teach a, an aspect of certification, and one of the credentials they needed was they needed a certified teacher, and I was certified to teach high school in Texas, and so my credential mm-hmm. was very much in need in the industry. Mm-hmm. But yeah, other than, (laughs) and so I got the job, but I can tell you about, I don't even know what part he loves, but this is my funny
0: story. He lost the job is the part he loves.
1: Uh Oh, about, about them taking my gun away
0: from Mm -hmm. me? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But say what you were going to say.
1: No, I was going to tell the story. It's like they, um, one of the requirements, we were licensed armed security guards who went out to businesses in the Houston area and provided that service to, um, like, one of the places I worked was a, was a lumber yard in the middle of the night. I was an armed security guard in that little box, you know, that little building by the front gate that you okay, see. Okay, wait,
0: wait, wait. I get it. <laughs> you were going to get to read a lot yeah, on yeah, this job? Yeah, I was studying. I was a law school student. So, you, okay. So, it, I, so I'm like, that's scary. That is scary. But I wasn't
1: scared. I was. It was, you know, you turn on lights and I had reading to do. But anyway, so they sent me to get certified uh, with a handgun. And I had never had a gun. My parents didn't. They weren't hunters or anything. But it, it was it was a skill, and it was competition. And I was the only girl in the room, again. Mm-hmm. And they gave me the gun, and, they, and you practiced. And it was a handgun, and you had to load it and empty it at a target. And then loaded again and emptied at a target and then they scored you and I outscored all the men some of whom were like hunters and Mm they sort of macho security guard guys because these this was their real job I was just this yeah 22 frankly 22 year old long blonde hair goofy little girl but it was a competition they told me how to win and so I practiced until I won (laughs) and um so I had a gun and I was licensed and I was really good with it I mean I knew how to use it right and I could do it. I mean, it was speed and accuracy, mm-hmm. top of the class. Yes. And my boss called me in, and he said, if someone came to Big Tin Barn, that was the name of my post, and they were going to hurt you or break in or whatever, could you shoot them? And I thought about it for a minute. I mean, like, truthfully, I'm 22 years old and, like, sort of 16 in many ways. <laughs> um <laughs> And I thought about it a minute. I was a goofy little girl. I was like, ah, no, I don't think so. And so my boss held his hand out to me and said, give me the gun. Because while you're thinking about it, the bad guy will take the gun away from you and shoot you with it. Mm. So the fact that you had not, that I got the answer wrong, but that I had to think about whether I could, and I got the answer wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And so they took the gun away from me.
0: I don't know why Jacob loves it so much either. I think he just thinks it's funny that like, that his mama couldn't (laughs) that's what you do as a security guard but like you could you could really probably be one of those people that could figure out how to do any job and do it well but in this one instance there was a line you know and it was just you were asked and he was expecting a yes whether it was a lie or not and you are like hmm no And, and you know what
1: credit to him Oh, for sure. Credit to him that he called me and that I was the top of the class and he didn't assume that I was going to be good at the job. Mm. Here I was certified. He'd spent a lot of money getting me certified, right, because that's Mm -hmm. what bosses do. Mm -hmm. And he had the sense just watching me or working with me that I wasn't the girl for that job. (laughs) So credit credit to that guy that took the gun away from me because he was absolutely right.
0: Yes. An angel intervening to set you on the right path.
1: Or just like a really smart boss who was thinking, this girl doesn't have it.
0: (laughs) I wonder how long he knew he needed to ask you that question, and it was like finally the end, and he was like, well, if I don't ask her now, I'm never going to. I don't
2: know.
1: I was really, I mean, he was 40-ish probably and had been in law enforcement his whole life, Mm -hmm. and probably was just a good enough law enforcement officer and judge of character mm-hmm. to watch me for a little while and think uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> yeah.
0: part of him was like but dang she's so good <laughs> right it's
1: like well and maybe, maybe he thought that I would flunk out at some point or quit or like I wouldn't score well enough mm-hmm. but I mean I wasn't shooting at people I was shooting at a target yeah. and they told me how to win the win so was win. Mm-hmm. get the little red dot in the middle bam 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 yep. all bullets through the little red dot <laughs>
0: that's awesome I didn't know that part of the story oh that I won well I I had to win I mean that was part of the deal right so my age knows the song all I do is win 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 yeah put your hands up all I do is win yeah that's her that's your new walk up to bat song Um, so I knew that part but I didn't know that you were like a skilled marksman that skilled marks yeah there we go anyways
1: Well, it's been a long time because nobody else gave me a gun, ever. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had another opportunity. (laughs) Yes, well. But you know what guns are? Guns are like um, the same thing as piano lessons. I've been been taking (laughs) piano lessons since I was seven years old, so you have to like be, you know, it's like manual dexterity, right? And eye hand coordination and hitting the F sharp when it's F sharp and not F, right? I mean, that's what a gun is.
0: Yep, Piano lessons. (laughs) We to see, marksmanship. I'm crazy. I
1: mean, like, that's probably completely crazy and not true, but it's like that's the only explanation for me winning that contest.
0: We're going to see, like, people's piano lesson enrollment go up after this. After podcast. this podcast. I hope so. Yep, and we'll attribute it all to you. All right. Well, thanks again for coming out, and I've enjoyed getting to learn more about you today. Oh, well, this has been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Witty and Gritty podcast. Join us at wittyandgritty.blog, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, check out our blog, and listen to more episodes. We're here to help you become your best self with a community that cares.